Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As we have been looking at our habits and we've started putting into practice more and more these ways of life, it occurred to me that what God is after is not so much what we are doing, but our hearts. I was considering this as I looked at our habit for this week, solitude. And what I mean is solitude is not something that is prescribed by God that we must do. But solitude is described as something our Lord Jesus did. And he was not alone in practicing solitude. Pun. Nor was he the first person, you'll get it later. Nor was he the first person from the Bible to be described seeking solitude. Yes, we are prescribed or called, right, to be in community, really placed in community, but we're called in Acts to not give up meeting together. We're called to pray. We're given words to pray. We are promised to be heard in our prayers. We're even charged by Paul to pray without ceasing. We're called to read the word, to speak the word, to use the word, to cherish it, to let the word have the run of our homes and our houses. We're called to worship to remember the Sabbath day, to sing praises, to sing hymns and spiritual songs. But with solitude, where there seems to be so many habits that we're looking at, I gotta say, why would I even try one that God doesn't command me to do, but I'm not trying to get out of work? Like I said, Jesus wasn't the only person in the Bible who practiced solitude. And I'd like to look at one in particular today. In the Old Testament, there was a man who was after God's own heart. Earlier, we read his psalm. It was David. He was the youngest son of Jesse, a lowly shepherd, the slayer of Goliath, king of Israel. And he is described in 1 Samuel 13 as the one the Lord has, thought, has sought for himself, a man after his own heart, and the one the Lord has appointed ruler over his people. Maybe you remember the story. When the prophet Samuel went, he looked at all of Jesse's sons and thought to himself, this has got to be the guy. He's tall. He's good looking. But God reminded him that he does not look at the outside. God looks at the heart. So he asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, only the runt who's out watching the sheep. So Samuel sends for him and anoints him. For he was the man after God's own heart, the one that God chose. It's a nice story, but the part that I'm drawn to the most is how David is described as a person after God's own heart. To be a person after God's own heart is to have a life that is in harmony with God, to be sensitive to the heart of God. The things that are important to God are supposed to be important to us. What burdens God is supposed to burden us. When he tells us to go right, we go right. When he tells us to stop, we stop. When he tells us to change, we do. A person after God's own heart is humble and authentic in their spiritual walk. They do the things we've talked about. They go to worship. They live in community. They pray. They're in the word. They serve. But not so that others will think they are holy. They don't do these things seeking God's approval or trying to earn God's love, but rather they have a heart for these things. They have disciplined themselves in these practices. They do not ignore them or do them when it is fashionable or convenient, but dedicate themselves to them. 
all the while understanding that God is using these habits to shape our hearts. Learning the art of surrender and knowing that above all, God himself through the Spirit is working these habits into our lives. And I think we see King David shaped by these habits, especially our, our habit for today, solitude. If you think about David's upbringing as a shepherd, he learned all of life's major lessons while he was alone. He was trusted with responsibilities before there were any major honors or a crown on his head and everyone knew his name. See, he grew up in the wild hills of Bethlehem, learning to be king of sheep. Think of all the times that David in solitude must have sat by himself. No phone to scroll through, no podcast to listen to, just the stars to lay under. Let the wind blow through your hair all alone. Think about the obscurity that he grew up in. I mean, his dad didn't even think to include him when the, when the prophet came to list out his sons. He was unknown, unseen, underappreciated, out there developing his character, his heart, in a place where it was obscure and there was no one to see. Think about all the monotony, monotony, there we go, I can almost say it, that he had to handle. Same thing, day after day. Maybe you could relate to that one. Menial, insignificant, routine, regular, unexciting, uneventful, daily tasks of life. Putting the brain on automatic pilot, doing the same thing over and over again. All with that nagging little thought right there in the back of the mind that says, this life is never going to change. I've never phone, flown a plane, but I hear that it's just hours of the same thing while you're up in the sky, and then there's that few stressful seconds of takeoff and landing. I don't know if that's true, but I do remember that when I've been on the plane, it's pretty boring in the air, and I may not like it very much during takeoff and landing, but I do remember that part, because that's reality, isn't it? And I think David knew all about reality. I don't know about you, but I read these stories about the disciples and about David and the exciting things that happened in their lives, the way they lived, the way that they followed God, Jesus, that, the, that, their, that their lives are so out of touch with my own, that their way of living, their experience are so not mine, that I look at one of these habits and I think to myself, that doesn't fit in my life. I mean, David got to fight Goliath. That was an extraordinary event. He was a kid who took down a giant with a sling. But for David, the reality was that he had been living through that moment all along. He'd been taking down lions and bears when nobody was around. That reality of facing the giant was true because it wasn't a big exciting moment to him. It was no different than any other in his eyes. Because that moment in his life wasn't about him. That wasn't the dream that he was chasing. He didn't see facing Goliath as the big breakthrough that he needed to get that extra view on Instagram. Finally be noticed. For in that moment, his reality did not change, nor did his heart. Because no matter who was around or what was going on, it didn't did not change the truth that David's God was real. 
that David's God was there with him, that David's God would stand with him. So when challenges came, he rose to face them. He rose to face the giant, and he didn't shrink from the challenge of being anointed and having to wait until becoming king. He did not shrink from the challenge or the mistake involving murder, adultery, and death. But through everything, his, sought, his heart sought God. And I think somewhere along the way, we've gotten the idea that this kind of life isn't the one that we can have. And I don't blame you or shame you because I've been there too. It gets exhausting, all this fighting against everything. It gets exhausting facing the monotony and the daily routines of life. The feeling of being stuck in the mud. Trying to hold it all together. Keep the mask on, the facade on, pretending that, hey, it's okay. But being caught in that undertow, which isn't enough to drown you, but in so many ways it's worse, right? Constantly seeing how everyone else has it together and wondering, I'm supposed to have it together too, so what's wrong with me? And then you just feel numb. And numb isn't the absence of feelings. It's the being overwhelmed with feelings. You become so numb, you just draw away to be alone. And here I am telling you that solitude is going to cure it. Read more, pray more, worship more, be in community more. If you're like me, maybe you've been finding yourself thinking, I don't know how much more I got. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. The psalm by David seems to come from a time of trouble, yet it's not asking God for anything. It's full of faith. It's full of trust. In direct contrast to fear or despair, can't really be sure when it was written or what it was written in response to, but it would appear that for David, the words have been said. Perhaps he's got no words left, so he can't ask. He has no more. He's at the end of the line. Tired and exhausted from whatever floods or flames and that uncomfortableness of his own skin. So he draws close to God and mutters truth. I think that's what real solitude is. Because here, all of the self has become silent. All the other voices and noise stilled. All the other options that he could choose have been hushed. The soul draws close to God. Don't take it away because I need to see it. The heart draws to where there is rest where there is salvation. Sprawled out on the rock, hiding in the fortress, where the overwhelming worries and concerns and noise and to-dos and inadequacies and fears can crash against, but they do not overcome. Each one of us has the same God as David, the God who is real, who is with us, who fights for us. And you may not be carrying a sling with some pebbles in it, but the reality is that we've all faced challenges. 
Some we have won, praise be to God, and some we have had to ask forgiveness for. And I read this and I think maybe it's time to stop listening to that enemy up here, the mind, who is always saying, getting alone with God, that's unrealistic. That's not the real world. Drawing close to Him isn't going to change anything. I think it's time to change the tide and the war with our minds and draw close and listen for the heart of God. Because getting alone with God doesn't mean you sit in the closet or on some boulder in the middle of a forest thinking about infinity. Maybe solitude isn't supposed to be about me time or alone time or get away from it all time. It means you simply draw close to God. Silence the voices, distractions. Close your eyes and draw close to Him. What would that look like? What would it look like instead of picking up the drink or the pills or the bad habits to help silence the pain in the voices, which never can silence for very long because they're neither rock nor fortress? But what would it look like to just close my eyes and say, find rest on my soul in God alone? How many times do you think you'd have to say it instead of picking something else up? How many times do you think you have to pray the same prayer and find yourself back where you don't want to be the next day? How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence. Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place, take delight in lies with their mouths they bless, their hearts they curse. The crazy, persistent attack. Describes himself as the leaning wall, the tottering fence. We have some choices to make. We can stay as a tottering fence, a leaning wall, stay on our own, patch ourselves together with whatever we can find and see how long we can stay up before we are torn down. Or we can find our strength in something else, someone else. And the last line, it seems to come back to the heart, does it not? The attack will always come the heart. He says it again, only this time in verses 5, 6, and 7, there's a subtle difference. Maybe you can find it. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation, my honor depend on Him. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Speaks to His soul, not His mind, but He speaks to His soul tells it to remain in the place of trust, to surrender to God, complete trust in his solitude. He comes and silences himself. He does not ask for the strength to rise up and no longer be a tottering fence, but a mighty hammer. He doesn't give God a knot of trust and then say, I'm going to deliver myself from this by making a new plan. He's not standing with one foot on the rock and another on the sand. He is completely on the rock complete trust and dependence. And if you check your bulletin for that last part in verse 2, is it possible maybe that he just made a mistake when he said, I will not be greatly shaken into I will not be shaken. 
Or is this perhaps the firm resolution, the coming out of the other side, finding yourself surer, knowing that the Lord is not just your defense, but also your defender? I think we know all too well that David could have been tempted to trust in many things, had the means and even the power to do what he wanted. But look how he associates himself with every name which he gives to God. My rock, my salvation, my fortress, my honor, my mighty rock, my refuge. It is not enough that the Lord is these things, our hope, our salvation, our fortress, our rock. But David teaches us to act in faith towards these things, thrusting us to trust in God that God will be them, that God will do them, that God will bring them to us. And that when we feel that the world is broken and the shadows deepen, we find rest. Knowing that no matter how dark it gets, the light will always shine through. And we find ourselves crying out, is anyone able to deliver me? Is anyone able to quiet this storm? Is anyone able to heal my soul? Is anyone able to satisfy my hunger, my thirst? Is anyone truly capable of loving me? He is. Christ is. Lord Jesus is. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And this is how we draw close to God amidst the messiness of life. The message of the psalm isn't that David is hopeful, hoping that it all works out and that the problems will just go away. The message is that the hope stems from the relationship with God, with who God is. Faith in God allows us to have faith for the future. That we are not alone. That we do not have to give in to any numbness or give in to any fear. But can pour our hearts out to the one who hears us. For as we draw close to him, seek solitude with him. Wait on God to act. The waiting is never static but it involves ongoing trust. The situation changes, the situation moves, but we keep moving closer and closer to God, coming to Him in prayer, in worship, in service, pouring out our hearts. We give our hearts to God. The Apostle Paul described giving your heart to God like this, don't give in to the anxiousness, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because our Lord Jesus' heart is for us. Our Lord Jesus does not hide himself or require us to get it all together and then come to him, but seeks us, draws close to us. And I'll close with alluding to another psalm that you know that David wrote, all about the heart of God. 
Or he gave him another name, not fortress, not rock, not salvation, not hope, but shepherd. Because out of God's heart, he is bringing us green pastures, still waters, rest, righteousness, walking with us, anointing us, feeding us. And then he closes it all out in confidence and trust and saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's not some kid dragging their dog behind them. Friends, that's like a lion stalking you. The goodness and mercy of God coming after you purposefully and passionately. Because he promises to be with you forever. And we will all dwell in his house. With him. Amen. Let's